This is Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 1.10, The Misfortune of Birth, and we're your hosts. I'm Tom, longtime Gundam fan and Three Laws compliant touring device. And I'm Nina, Gundam noob, and Tom said to warn you not to tell me any spoilers because I am totally untrustworthy. I'm a flivver to gibbet. Alright, definitely no one's going to get that. Thank you all for listening and supporting the podcast, and special thanks to everyone who has reached out to us recently to tell us how much you've been enjoying listening to us talk about Gundam. Jeffrey and Michael on Facebook, Reddit users T. Kovaleski, Mr. Pajama Sharkman, and Carrotman424, as well as Bennett and Ron who sent us emails. We love hearing from all of you. And for Ennui on Me, who reviewed us on Apple Podcasts, don't worry, we are just as eager to get into the newer shows too, and we're working on a couple of secret plans that should allow us to speed up our progress through First Gundam without sacrificing the depth we love bringing to this show. We will have more details about those soon, so keep listening. Also, a rare Mobile Suit Gundam apology to Reddit user BaltimoreDave14, who thought this was going to be a podcast about Gungans. (laughs) And now, episode 10. We open with the sun setting over the rubble of a city. Nearby, an untouched mansion hosts a Zeon party. Everyone fawns over Garma, not just as a dashing officer, but, we learn, as one of the sons of Sovereign Degwinzabi, leader of Zeon. The local mayor, our host, has stayed on despite the occupation and his hatred of Zeon, wanting to help his people who couldn't flee. Shar disdains the whole party, but Garma enjoys the opportunity to reunite with Iselina, the mayor's daughter, with whom he's carrying on a love affair. They contemplate running away together, but Garma would rather win his family over with a great victory, something that will convince them to allow him to marry who he likes. A soldier interrupts them with news that the White Base has reached the last Xeon defensive line, and Garma and Shar rush to catch them before they escape. While the White Base flies low through the ruins of a city, Xeon forces in the Gao drop a series of blindingly bright flares, trying to find them. The base hides itself in the remains of a stadium, while the Gao attempts to flush them out by carpet bombing the area, incendiary bombs lighting up the ruins. Back at the mayoral mansion, Iselina tries to take a jet and run away to join Garma, but her father stops her. While the White Base remains in hiding, the Gundam deploys to fight Shar and the two other Zaku, with the goal of leading them into a trap. During the battle, Shar notices how much Amaro's skills have improved. He also notices the white base in its hiding place, and decides this is the moment to take his revenge on the Zabi family. Shar tells Garma the white base is retreating, and to follow him to pursue it. Instead, Garma is ambushed, the white base, gun cannon, and gun tank all firing on the Gao from behind. As the Gao takes fire and begins to descend, Shar gloats over the radio, telling Garma to blame his misfortune on the accident of his birth. Knowing that there is no escape, Garma thinks of his beloved Iselina once more, before crying, All glory to Zeon, and aiming the damaged attack carrier at the white base itself. Before it can reach them, the Gao succumbs to the barrage and disintegrates, breaking into unrecognizable pieces. The sun rises just as the battle has ended. We are left with two people grieving Garma's death, Iselina, heartbroken and alone, and on side three in the Zeon capital, Sovereign Degwin, stunned into silence. It's our first glimpse of the Xeon homeland, which, could they make it look more villainous? I'm not sure they could. I mean, they could have done it in black and red and purple or something, but... That castle that looks like a monster is about the most evil thing you can imagine. Yeah, it, they went out of their way to make their capital look super scary and like they're the bad guys. <laughs> 
Did you notice when you see the Xeon colony in space that it doesn't have any of the transparent panels the other colonies do? I did notice that something about it looked strange, like a little darker and older and perhaps a little decrepit looking from the outside. That's a good read. That's appropriate to it. The Xeon homeland, those colonies side three, were the only ones that were built as what they call closed type colonies. So they have no exposure to outside sunlight. It's really the first time the show has clarified some of those Xeon relationships for us. We now know that Garma is Dozel's younger brother. We know that their father is the sovereign Degwin. The leader of Xeon. We know that they have a sister, although she doesn't get mentioned in this episode. And we see what occupied Xeon looks like. We open with a glimpse of a completely destroyed city. Huge shells of buildings toppled over on top of each other. Followed by a glimpse of the untouched suburbs <laughs> and their mansions. And a society ball. A real old-fashioned society ball full of collaborators. Ah, see, I think we had very different reads on that. I assumed most of the people there were Xeons with a few locals. Garma makes the point that the mayor, Iselina's father, stayed on to kind of keep an eye on things in his community. The implication, I thought, was that he could have left, but he didn't want to abandon his community to Zeon. And I think that's right. This is Mayor Eschenbach, and it's his mansion this party is happening at. I viewed these people as local collaborators, but it's possible they're Zeon transplants with their sniveling, toadying ways. Garma, won't you introduce <laughs> us to your father? Yes, we'd like to meet the Sovereign. <gasps> Garma, he's so dreamy. <laughs> well, other than for the people in uniform, it's impossible to tell who might be a local and who is a, of Zeon. We also get a glimpse of Iselina and Garma's romance. Yeah, this episode gives us a very abbreviated Romeo and Juliet story for them. And it really makes Garma quite sympathetic. Mm. You don't think so? Somewhat, but I, I did notice the very striking difference between I don't care about the Federation and I don't care about Xeon, I just want to be with you versus I'm going to try and pull off something so great that my dad will let me do what I want. <laughs> and then I guess maybe if that doesn't work, I'll leave Xeon. Fair. <laughs> Garm is clearly not as committed to this relationship, but he does think of her in his last moments. Oh, God, that was so sad. We'll come back to that. Yeah. Garma won some points with me for his what seems like very earnest disdain for all of this pomp and circumstance and all of these toadies surrounding him. Well, he has more pressing matters to consider. As Shar points out to him, if these people knew about the white base, yeah. they wouldn't be here partying. In the last few episodes of the podcast, we've gone back and forth on whether Garma is trying to play Shar at the same time that Shar is playing Garma. I think this episode finally gives us the answer that he's not. Garma actually really likes Shar. He also likes sticking it to Shar on occasion and playing up his own privilege, his own rank at the expense of Shar. But maybe because he's just... A princeling? <laughs> yeah, he's, he's a princeling. He's careless. Not because there's any mean-spiritedness to it. Not that Garma hasn't done horrible things. Garma has done horrible things. But there is an effort here to make him more sympathetic. Also, apparently, Char wears his mask even at parties. <laughs> he takes it off in the shower, <laughs> but he wears it at parties. This is the first really big twist of Gundam. I'm not sure what you're referring to yet. <laughs> Char betraying Garma to his death? Yes. Well, we've seen a couple of times that he's put Garma in deadly danger. We haven't had any hints as to why until now. Well, it's all because of the misfortune of Garma's birth. Well, it's because Garma's father did something to Char. I assume something that has to do with why he doesn't know where his sister is. I just realized what Char has done is really vengeance on behalf of one of his parents. If I had to make an assumption based on anime tropes, I'd say his mom, who lost a child because of something that <laughs> Sovereign Degwin did. And so now Char has taken one of Sovereign Degwin's children. And we'll see if you're right about that. <laughs> 
Karma realizes shortly before the end that he's been tricked. Char also takes a moment to rub it in and explain yeah. to him why. Karma realizes he's been tricked because Char radios him and says, I tricked you. See, I think he realizes when one of the men on his bridge says, oh, we're being fired on from behind. He's like, from behind? But at that point, I don't think he knows it was Char, that it was always Char. Under heavy fire from the white base, the gun cannon, and the gun tank simultaneously, Garma hops into the pilot seat and attempts to crash the Gao into the white base. Screaming eternal glory to Xeon. And in his last moments, we see Iselina. We see her mouth moving but don't hear what she's saying. I assume he's remembering their last encounter and her professions of love. And then the Gao blows up before it can reach the white base. The obvious parallel, of course, being kamikaze pilots. Yeah. Though it's a superficial parallel, because kamikaze pilots knew from the beginning that that's what they were going to do. That was clearly not the intended purpose of the destroyer that Karma is on. Though the early kamikaze runs often came about in circumstances similar to this one, where a craft was fatally damaged, and it was a choice between trying to land it, bail out, versus turning it into a flying bomb. Yeah, this episode is really all about Xeon. The White Base crew shows up for maybe 20% of the episode's runtime. They are the antagonists in this episode. We don't get a lot of time with the White Base, but I think we get some nice continuing development between Bright and Amuro. Amuro is back from his depression in the last episode. He's on the bridge. He's doing some duties. He suggests a plan of attack that involves him going out in the Gundam. And a much more confident and self-possessed Bright can hear these suggestions and reject them, but without sort of taking it personally or feeling like he needs to tell Amuro he's an idiot or anything like that. He's just like, no, we're going to do something different for now. Let's try this plan first. And he winds up coming back to Amuro's plan later in a modified form, but he's not bothered by Amuro questioning him. Yeah, Bright is very much in command in this episode. And that both describes his attitude, his behavior, also his actual situation. Conspicuous in his absence is Lieutenant Reed. Bright is back in total command and showing it. We get a nice little contrast. When the bombing first starts between Sela on the bridge and Mirai on the bridge, Sela is like a statue. She's staring out the windows of the bridge at the bombing, completely still and calm. She's the only one who is on the whole white base. And Mirai, and I love this about Mirai, I feel like it's a constant thread in the way she's drawn and in her characterization. She's not expressing fear verbally. She's not freaking out. She's not panicking. She doesn't say a word, but she's sitting there with her hands clasped, held in front of her face in a way that tells you she's nervous. It almost looks like she's praying. <laughs> And we've talked before about how they give her little ticks like chewing on the straw of a juice box or on the radio antenna of a walkie-talkie, the way they have her lean against a wall. They give her a lot of great physical characterization that you don't necessarily see in the other characters. Though its presence in some characters suggests that its absence for others may be intentional and may say something about them as characters, especially Sela. The contrast in that scene is too obvious to ignore. I think the conclusion we have to draw from that is that there's something about Sela that makes her very, very, maybe calm isn't even the right word, but unemotive. I, I was going to say disciplined. I think we also get a bit of a contrast with Bright, who the most physically emotive we see him is maybe a sense of kind of nervous energy. But for the most part, the soldiers are very disciplined in their comportment and in how they carry themselves. Mirai is confident and competent, but does not have that same physical discipline. But Sela is not a soldier. Sela is a medical student. But we, I strongly suspect that at one point or another, Sela has had military training. Maybe Sela is just very strong, perhaps too strong. You're not going to stop me from making predictions. I wouldn't if I could. We also get one brief scene of the civilians on the white base in what I assume is meant to be reminiscent of the experience of being in a bomb shelter. Fra has to come in and calm everyone down, convince them to stay put. 
their desire to leave is because of that panic and claustrophobia, not because it's rational, and she knows that. The part of that scene that I'm deeply curious about and wondering what your read-on was, was the baby. We hear a baby cry, and Fra turns her flashlight, and the orphans are holding a baby and trying to get this baby to calm down, and there's no sign of a parent in sight. And my first reaction was, oh, wow, (laughs) a tinier orphan. And then after Fra comes in and takes the baby and tries to calm it down, the mother appears. Oh, we got separated. Thank you. Like, you know, the mother is there. They got separated in the rush to shelter. This baby is not an orphan. But what is the point of that scene? What is that scene meant to show us or make us feel? We've had a lot of scenes about mothers in the last few episodes. Really, the whole show, there's been this recurring theme of motherhood, of mothers absent and present. And this continues that. Could be intentional. It could be that some of the writers, one of the writers in specific, had a thing about motherhood (laughs) that's going to keep coming up in the whole Gundam franchise for years to come. It could also be that this is a little bit of characterization for the orphans. We see them really patterning their behavior on Fraubo's behavior. And to a certain degree, they've done that since the beginning. They've constantly tagged along with her, helped her, supported her, been under her wing. And as she takes care of them, they take care of the smaller one. I did wonder briefly if we're meant to have a moment of sympathy for Fra, if this isn't a moment of Fra thinking of her own mother. And they were briefly separated, and that might be the only reason Fra is still alive. Yeah. But her mother is gone. They're never going to be reunited. This whole scene with all of the refugees can be viewed through the lens of Frau because she's in control here. She's asking everyone to stay calm, but she's also a non-combatant, basically, in the ship, in the same compartment with all of them, trying to stay calm during this bombing campaign. Their fear is something she's probably feeling too, but she's subsuming it because she has things she has to do. She has people she has to take care of. Well, she has duties. As she explains to Amaro in the previous episode, she has responsibilities and commitments to these people. And she takes pride in that. She would hop in the Gundam if she could, but this is something she can do. And she's going to continue to do it as long as she can. I did think it was a little rich, Amaro, trying to be like, I'm a civilian. Especially after last episode with Lieutenant Matilda, when she basically tells them all like, oh, well, I think you're for real soldiers because we need you. And (laughs) welcome to the Federation Army. Congrats. Here's some supplies. (laughs) See you on the other side. And he seems very proud and preening a little bit, you know. a real soldier? Oh. Yeah, you know, he's... A little puffed up, a little like, ah, yes, I am for real. (laughs) And now he's trying to argue with Bright. I'm a civilian. Listen, if Bright smelled like Matilda, he wouldn't be arguing. (laughs) I think Amaro says that out loud, but we're meant to take that as Amaro's internal monologue. He's just sort of kicking the floor and going, I'm a civilian too, you know, still somehow. Which shows us he hasn't. He's not completely out of his funk, right? He hasn't completely accepted his situation. (laughs) And if that line weren't there, everything Amuro does in this episode would lead us to believe that he is completely over his funk from the last episode. So that line, short as it is, really serves an essential purpose in making sure that we know where Amuro is at. As we talked about two episodes ago when we were talking about Tomino's film influences, in an Ozu-style work, A little bit of dialogue like that can stand in for a huge amount of characterization. Navel gazing. Exactly. (laughs) So with that one line and the rest of his behavior in this episode, we know where Amaro's at. He's accepted that there are things he needs to do. He has not accepted that this is part of who he is. So I think this is probably my favorite battle so far. It's the most interesting. There's a ton going on. To start with, we have the huge, intensely bright flares as the Xeon forces attempt to flush out or at least find the white base hidden amongst the buildings of the city. When that doesn't work, Char suggests flushing them out with a carpet bombing. (laughs) Using what Char makes sound like a old folksy expression. The only way to flush a rat out of a hole is with some carpet bombing. (laughs) When they show us the carpet bombing, I did wonder, 
based on the way that the bombs are animated, whether it included incendiaries. They had some of the bombs going off in the air rather than when they hit the ground, which is a thing that incendiaries do because then they disperse flaming material more widely over a larger area. And we find out that that is, in fact, the case when Amuro in the Gundam has taken a position, is looking for the Xeon forces, and we hear the crackle of the fire. It's the only sound we hear. It's three against one. We have Char and two nameless, faceless grunts. We don't even see their faces. Disappointing. And Amro. And as with almost every combat so far, we hear Char comment on Amro's improvement as a Gundam pilot. Well, this is a fight in which Amro is not just flying around in space, shooting Zaku. He's hiding behind cover. He's taking up a good firing position. He's hiding in a building, waiting for Zaku to walk by and then blowing its head off with his bazooka. Yeah, he's strategic. But Char is more strategic. As Amuro is flushed out by the nameless grunt Zaku, Char is watching from above. And whenever Amuro thinks he has a moment to rest, Char is blasting him with the Zaku bazooka. And frankly, Char is a few steps ahead of everyone. He can tell what Amuro is doing. When Amuro retreats back toward the white base position, he sees just a sliver of the white base (laughs) from uh, outside of the stadium and says, oh, I see. You're trying to lead me into a trap. (laughs) I think I will use your trap for Garma. There's a possibility Char might have been able to take down the Gundam and the White Base in this episode if he had not been more concerned with taking down Garma. He's so many steps ahead. He is, that's true. However, I'm not sure he could do it alone. And now that we have the gun cannon and the gun tank consistently piloted and piloted increasingly well, I'm not sure Char could do that by himself. But if he had gone with Garma's plan, if he'd used the full might of this Xeon assault force, I think he might have been able to do it. Clearly, revenge was just more important to him. This episode gives us a brief glimpse, very easy to miss, of Amuro's instincts. There's a moment where he can't see the enemy, but he kind of feels where they are. Anticipates where they are likely to be. It's not the first time he's done it. A couple of episodes back, when he was dueling, he had a similar moment where he realized Char was there before he saw him. Which takes us back to Lieutenant Matilda's semi-joking comment that Amuro must be an esper. He must have ESP. If you don't know, the term Esper, which shows up in anime all the time for a psychic, is actually just esp which is how we got to Esper, and then it showed up in Final Fantasy, and then it became just a trope in and of itself. I know just enough about future Gundam series to be dangerous in this regard. <laughs> it's science fiction. There's a lot of science fiction that speculates that as humanity moves into space, we'll develop new senses and new abilities that we did not have on Earth. It's unclear whether we're meant to think, oh, hey, maybe Lieutenant Matilda wasn't completely joking. Maybe there are people with ESP. Or if that is just a joke and Amuro's increased battle sense is what happens when someone gets enough experience to anticipate their opponent's movements. There's a neat framing device in this episode. We open on the ruins of a city during the sunset. During the battle, we see that same city lit by fire, lit by incendiaries. It looks more or less exactly like the sunset did, but we know it's the middle of the night. And the episode closes with the city at dawn. And briefly, we have the flare where we go from the city at night suddenly to daytime, almost. False day. I almost don't count the flare because it's so bright, you can't see the city anymore. <laughs> it's it's blinding. It takes up our entire field of view. Whereas these other shots of the city are stills, essentially. They're almost the same shot with different lighting. And while we can certainly joke about how this is more cutting animation corners <laughs> and using the same assets as much as possible, milking them for all they're worth. This is also very cinematic. We talked a little bit when we talked about Ozu that he would use still shots between scenes to establish changes in location or passage of time. And these still shots do that. It reinforces our position on the battlefield, but emphasizes the passage of time in this single night for this single battle. 
There's no reason in the episode that you would know this, but those are actually two different cities. This is a tale of two cities sort of episode. The first city we see where we see the city wrecked, and then we cut to the mansion of the former mayor Eschenbach. That's New York City. What? He is the he is the former mayor of New York City. And that's where Garma has set up his Earth Occupation headquarters. Then we cut to the White Base, which is actually in Seattle. They're that far apart? Yes. And Garma gets there in, like, presumably an hour or something? <laughs> like Future planes. Wow. Okay. Yeah, the time scale is a bit compressed, I guess. The cities look the same. They do. They They're really... all ruins. And I think in current... In current anime, they would make a point of including some kind of monuments or identifiable architecture in those ruins so that you knew what they were. Part of Grand Central would be there, or like Spire of the Empire State Building, or the Chrysler Building. You know, something in those New York ruins would scream New York. The Statue of Liberty would be in the background. I don't know. They would make it obvious. Mm -hmm. Seattle would have the Space Needle. You know, it... <laughs> I suppose I'm also confused because last we checked in with the White Base, they were on the East Coast. Yes, they're moving <laughs> fast. And headed for the, I guess, Pacific Ocean, not the Atlantic. Here I thought they were just trying to get to the Atlantic Ocean. I thought they were so close. But apparently, Zeon has control of the vast majority of North America, if not all of it. Yep. I complained in the talkback that the cities were impossible to identify since the animators didn't include any landmarks, but I was wrong. The stadium the White Base hides in? That's a real stadium. The Seattle Kingdome, so named because it was owned and operated by King County. It was opened in 1976 and served as the home stadium for the Seahawks NFL team and the Mariners MLB team. Due to baseball's popularity in Japan, the stadium would have been well known. It was also brand new when the show came out. Which leads to my next point. What are we doing in Seattle? I do not understand the geography of what's happening at all. We were on the East Coast, we're pretty sure. We were in Canada. We were near Sanange, and they were trying to get to the ocean. And I assumed they meant the Atlantic, but apparently not. I attempted to do a little research on this on my own, looking for some fan-created maps, since the show doesn't seem to ever get explicit about this. The one thing the fan maps seem to agree on is that North America is almost completely Xeon controlled. There's some inconsistency in the maps as to how much of Mexico and or how much of Central America or the Caribbean is under Xeon control, but the United States, Canada, Northern Mexico, all Xeon. So where are we trying to get to? There's no consistency in how much of Europe is Federation or Xeon controlled. There's no consistency in basically any other part of the world. <laughs> Tom gave a rare spoiler and told me they were on their way to South America. Which I regret. <laughs> which, according to some of the maps, seems to be all Federation, and some maps is only mostly Federation. And now we get into the danger of relying on the maps. <laughs> Don't do it. They're lies. It's all lies. As far as I'm aware, there is no good official source for the extent of the Xeon Earth occupation that is contemporary or even close to First Gundam. Various fans have pieced together what information they can from later magazines, quasi-official works like the Gundam magazine Gundam Historica, and at least a couple of brief shots of maps from later series. But this is all sort of after-the-fact stuff and really doesn't give us a good idea for what the creators were actually thinking during the creation of First Gundam. So take all of it with a grain of salt. GundamOfficial.com, which is pretty official as far as Gundam.coms go, <laughs> describes Xeon's Earth forces as having made five distinct landings. One landing was in Central Asia around the Aral Sea, Two were made in North America, one on the East Coast and one on the West Coast. A fourth landing was in Oceania, and the fifth was in the Mediterranean for the Middle East and North Africa. By this point in the conflict, the general consensus seems to be that Xeon controls most of Europe, all of the continental US, 
Mexico, Central America, and parts of Canada, plus Central Asia, the Middle East, and North Africa, along with most of Southeast Asia and Australia. There are several sources that suggest that Xi'an may have deployed naval or submarine forces in the Atlantic, Arctic, and Indian Oceans, but not in the Pacific. I strongly suspect this last little tidbit was invented later in order to help explain why the White Base is headed for the Pacific and not the Atlantic. Yeah, it seems like a leap to say, we've been talking about going to the ocean. We mean the ocean on the other side of the continent. Yeah. Is there any speculation as to why they did that? I have my own theory, which is that Garma's main headquarters is in New York. That's not a theory. That's what we know. Garma's Garma's occupation headquarters is in New York. At least in the anime, it's different in the manga. But (laughs) so Garma is based in New York. Xeon forces in Canada are somewhat weaker. And along the path of the white base, they may have been able to largely avoid Xeon forces. But going into the Atlantic would mean going straight towards Garma's base. So this may simply be a situation where the Atlantic would have been closer, but it also would have been much harder to get there. Whereas if they take the northern route, the northwest passage across Canada, headed for the Pacific, they manage to avoid most of the Xeon forces. And we do get the impression in this episode that until they reached Seattle and the last defense line, Xeon had actually lost track of the white base. Yeah, they seem fairly confident that it hasn't gotten through their line unseen, but they're not entirely sure where the white base is. Hang on, so they must have crossed the continent really fast to catch the white base. We know that Garma's force left New York sometime after the moon rose and arrived in Seattle sometime before the moon set there. We can also deduce approximately when all of this is happening by observing that Isolina wears a light jacket when she runs outside after the party, and that the trees on the grounds of the Eschenbach Manor in New York are in full leaf. The jacket and green leaves suggest that this is happening in springtime, and we can actually narrow it down even more, because the trees in New York tend to bloom late because of the risk of a late-season frost in that part of the world. We're probably looking for a day, therefore, in mid to late May. All of this goes down on the night of a full moon, so for our comparative analysis purposes, I picked the one full moon that fell during late May in 2018, the night of May 29th and the morning of May 30th, to use for our comparison. While the exact moonrise and moonset in May of UC 79 might be a little different, it should be close enough to make our estimates valid. I'm going to be giving all the times in Eastern Standard Time to make comparisons easier. So just remember that local time in Seattle is three hours earlier. Moonrise in New York on May 29th was at 8.22 p.m., but the moon is already pretty high in the sky by the time Garma left the party. I would estimate it was somewhere between 15 and 30 degrees above the horizon, which puts Garma's departure time somewhere between 10 p.m. and midnight. Moonset in Seattle on May 30th was 9.23 a.m., again that's EST, but sunrise happened a little over an hour earlier at 8.17 a.m. We know Garma arrived before the sun rose, and the moon was still high in the sky when his strike force reached Seattle, so I would estimate an arrival time between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. That means it took the gal between three and eight hours to travel from New York City to Seattle. So how plausible is that? Actually, very plausible. It's around 2,400 miles from New York City to Seattle, meaning that the gal had to travel between 300 and 800 miles per hour in order to make the journey in the time we already estimated. For comparison, let's look at the Lockheed C-5 Galaxy, the largest military aircraft in the world. This is a real-world behemoth, first flown in 1968 and capable of carrying six Apache helicopters at once. It's still about four times smaller than the Gao, but while the Galaxy is powered by four jet engines, the Gao has 18 engines. Wow. An onboard nuclear reactor and future technology. (laughs) Obviously. So I think the comparison remains a fair one. The Galaxy has a cruising speed of 518 miles per hour easily fast enough to make the trip from New York to Seattle and still arrive with plenty of time to get wrecked by the white base before sunrise. Shar mentions carpet bombings, and it would be remiss of us not to address it, but we are not going to get super technical. It turns out that researching carpet bombings and incendiaries is very depressing. It's a part of the long and horrifying human history of finding new and inventive and really gross ways to kill each other. So we're going to be keeping this brief. There will be some links in the show notes if you would like more information. 
Carpet bombing, also known as saturation bombing, is a type of aerial bombardment that aims to damage the entirety of a target area to cover it like a carpet. Though its first use was probably in the 1930s, the most famous uses were in World War II and in Vietnam. You've probably heard about a number of the cases from World War II. Rotterdam, Berlin, Hamburg, Dresden, famously chronicled in Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse-Five, as well as Tokyo, Kobe, Osaka, and Nagoya were all destroyed by carpet bombings. In the Vietnam War, B-52 bombers were initially restricted to remote strikes due to their destructiveness, but were eventually used on Hanoi and other North Vietnamese cities. New York and Seattle in this episode give every appearance of having been destroyed in this way. It's not that there are some destroyed buildings and some unharmed. Everything is rubble. Everything is gone. On a basic level, an incendiary is anything designed to cause a fire. The only reason to dig into incendiaries specifically here is because they appear to drop one. One of the bombs that the Gao deploys opens up, dispersing many smaller bombs from within it, which is a type of incendiary device that aims to spread the fire over a larger area. There are conventional bombs that also use that cluster bombing system, but we have other reasons, as we discussed, to believe that this was an incendiary bomb. Including the fact that the sound effects after the deployment of the bomb include fire crackling in the background. Two of the carpet bombings we mentioned, Dresden and Tokyo, both involved the use of incendiaries. The creators of this show would have, some of them, remembered these events or would have been told about them by parents and older siblings. Many, but not all, of the incendiary bombs used during World War II, as we discussed several episodes back, would have used napalm in its earliest applications in warfare. And of course, the incendiary bombs used in Vietnam would also have used napalm. The other type uses chemicals like magnesium, thermite, and white phosphorus, things that burn very hot and for a long time. Like I said, the technology behind these bombs is, while chemically interesting, incredibly depressing to get into. <laughs> so uh, we'll leave that one for any of you who are curious and feel like doing a little heavy reading. And remember, this is a kid's show. At this point, was there any doubt left that First Gundam is a story about World War II before Garma decided to launch his ultimately unsuccessful kamikaze attack on the Federation's new mobile suit carrier, screaming glory to the Principality of Xeon? Named after the divine wind that protected Japan from foreign invaders in the late 1200s when typhoons destroyed two separate invasion fleets dispatched by Mongolian leader Kublai Khan, the kamikaze looms large in our collective memory of the Pacific War, adopted by the Japanese forces after they suffered several crippling naval defeats, and the development of new American weapons left the once-dominant Japanese air forces totally outnumbered and outdated. Helpless to stop the American advance any other kind of way, some Japanese pilots began loading heavy bombs onto their planes and then crashing them into American or British ships. Some were volunteers, but many, perhaps most, and even many in the very first waves, were ordered, even forced into doing it. As with everything in war, the numbers are hard to pin down, and everyone who looks at it comes up with different answers. Katsuho Naito, a Japanese military scientist at the Imperial Navy's Aeronautical Research Laboratory, who turned war historian later in life, wrote that around 4,000 pilots, from experienced aces the Japanese could ill afford to lose, down to fresh trainees barely able to keep their planes in the air, who the Japanese could also ill afford to lose, were sacrificed in these special attack squads. In this era before guided bombs, these pilot-guided attacks could be devastatingly effective, but at a terrible cost. Around 19% of kamikaze pilots managed to hit their targets, sinking anywhere between 34 and 57 allied ships, as well as damaging many others. We will, I think, have more opportunities to discuss the coordinated massive-scale kamikaze attacks of the late war years. For now, I want to focus on the early period spontaneous suicide attacks. After all, Garma did not launch from New York intending to ram his Gao into the white base. In particular, I want to talk about what is probably the very first kamikaze-style attack of World War II. And I say kamikaze-style because this was a suicide crash in a fighter plane, but it occurred during the surprise attack on the Pearl Harbor naval base at the very beginning of the war in the Pacific. 
Minutes before the attack began on Pearl Harbor proper, a detachment of Japanese planes bombed naval air station Kaneohe Bay, the staging ground for the Pacific Fleet's long-range reconnaissance aircraft, 36 PBY Catalina seaplanes. The bombing destroyed 27 Catalinas and damaged a further six. Only the three that were out on patrol during the attack survived. While the Japanese aircraft were regrouping before returning to their carriers, the highest-ranking officer in the squadron, Lieutenant Iida Fusata, signaled that his Zero fighter had suffered damage to its fuel tanks. He had told his men before the mission that, should his fighter become badly damaged, he intended to crash it into some worthy target. And now he attempted to follow through. As they left, he aimed his plane at the base's main hangar and attempted to ram it. But just like Garma, fire from the ground tore his plane apart before he could reach his target. This is a sad episode, and we've had to deal with some heavy topics. But now we get to talk about Yoshikazu Yasuhiko, our animation director, and I imagine responsible for some of the beautiful visuals of the episode. So animation director is an interesting role. The whole series has a director. That's Tomino. We've talked about him many times. Each episode has a director who's in charge of putting the whole episode together. But then below the episode director is the animation director, who is in charge, essentially, of all of the art for the episode. And that is the role that Yasuhiko performed on this episode. Yasuhiko was also the character designer for the whole series, in addition to being the animation director for this particular episode. And not even just this episode. He actually did the direction for episodes 1, 2, and 3, 6, and 7, 9, this episode, 10, and 8 more before the series concluded. When we look at this episode and we see the really beautiful art, the striking visual style of the battle with the moonlight and the flares, that's Yasuhiko. The various still shots of the ruined cities at sunset, lit by fire, and then at sunrise, that's Yasuhiko. Of course, anime is a very collaborative medium. He didn't do any of this alone, but he was in charge of the visual elements of these last couple of episodes. Yoshikazu Yasuhiko, or Yas, was born in Hokkaido, in a city called Engaru in Japanese, or Inkarus-i in Ainu. Now, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. I've done what research I can on how to pronounce Ainu words and listened to quite a bit of Ainu language being spoken by native speakers, but I'm still probably getting it wrong. I did, however, want to give the native Ainu term for the place as well. Inkarusi is on the north coast of Hokkaido, about as far north as you can get and still be within that thing called Japan. He went to college in Aomori, which is the furthest north part of Honshu, then dropped out to go work at Osama Tezuka's Mushi Productions. Yasuhiko was born in 1947 and worked at Mushi Productions throughout the 70s, making him a contemporary of Tomino and many of the other artists he was working with. Yasa's first project at Mushi Productions was to work on Wandering Sun, which is also the first anime to depict the entertainment industry, and the first one to feature the now common storyline of two high school girls compete to become popular singers. Wandering Sun came out in 1970, which meant it coincided with the early emergence of idol culture in Japan. And this was also the first time that Yas worked with Tomino, who was the storyboard artist for Wandering Sun. Yas is quoted as having said that he does very poor work on projects he's not interested in, an example being Science Ninja Team Gachaman, which I believe was another Sunrise production, because it didn't hit on the things that interest Yaz stylistically, things like history or mythology, politics, real people he just was not invested in and did not consider it up to his usual work quality. After working on First Gundam, Yas did remain involved with the Gundam franchise and is still currently involved. He's the creator of the manga for The Origin and directed at least a little bit the OVA series Gundam The Origin. He also collaborated with Tomino quite a bit in those early years. He worked with Tomino on Bravery Dean and Zambot 3 before they both worked on First Gundam. After he left Mushi Productions, he worked on a sci-fi series called Zero Tester before working on Gundam. And Zero Tester also included one of the other animation directors from First Gundam and one of its writers, as well as the eventual head writer for G Gundam. Yes, started working as a man- artist in the late 70s and is what he's best known for. He's won numerous awards in Japan for his manga throughout his long career. At various points, he's talked about being inspired by the work of Go Nagai, who is famous for his science fiction, as well as by Renoir, which you can see a little bit if you look up Yoshikazu Yasuhiko's artwork online. It's very painterly. It's not pen and ink drawing. It's all painted subjects, very rich colors, and he has a very unique style 
that you can see in all of his work. Tom touched on this, but I hadn't known that Gundam The Origin started as a manga. And it was actually a serial in the magazine Gundam Ace. Gundam Ace. And has sold over 10 million copies. That's a lot of millions. He also announced that Gundam The Origin would be his last anime project, though he will probably continue to create manga. Gundam The Origin, which we're not going to talk about too much because every time I start talking about it, Nina kicks me under the microphone, but... Gundam The Origin covers a lot of the same ground that the first Gundam anime covers. And I think it's interesting to compare Tomino, who has sort of moved on from Gundam and only comes back once a decade, generally doesn't like to focus too much on his old work, versus Yas, who is perfectly happy to keep working in the Gundam universe and, in fact, to go back and take another stab at the events of first Gundam. Last episode, Lieutenant Matilda told Amaro that he might be an Esper. And in this episode, we saw Amaro display what could have been enhanced battle senses due to his familiarity with combat and his improving reflexes, or could have been a little bit of extrasensory perception. So this made me very curious. Where does the term Esper actually come from? And I started to do a bit of research. And it seems like the first use of the term Esper is in a 1950 sci-fi short story by Alfred Bester called Adi and Id, or sometimes The Devil's Invention. It's mostly a story about probability manipulation, but there is a passing mention of Espers as psychics. Bester's best-known work is actually the sci-fi detective story The Demolished Man, which was serialized from 1951 to 52, and then re-released as a novel in 53. And this one centers around espers and their powers, and they're called espers. Demolished Man won the very first Hugo Award for Best Novel, and it was translated into Japanese at least as early as 1965, then republished with a different translation in either 72 or 76. The sources are inconsistent. I couldn't find any use of the term Esper in anime or manga prior to 1970, but English language resources for this sort of search are really limited and totally inadequate. So I can't say for certain, but I would guess that the term Esper did not become popular in Japanese sci-fi until after Demolished Man was translated into Japanese, which means that this 1979 reference in Gundam is probably one of the very first ones to use this particular term, which then went on to be very popular. As for the history of psychic powers in sci-fi, there was a notable boom in sci-fi stories dealing with psychic powers starting in the 1950s, in the English-language-speaking world at least, mostly because of the powerful sci-fi magazine editor John W. Campbell, who edited Astounding Science Fiction. He became fascinated by psychic powers first as an element of science fiction, but he would later dive full-on into the pseudoscience realm, and was one of L. Ron Hubbard's earliest and most vocal devotees to Dianetics and Scientology and all of that. Also, he was super racist. Anyway, what relationship that had with Japanese sci-fi, Tomino, and Gundam remains a mystery requiring further investigation. We'll have to leave that for some other time. Next week, we'll return with episode 1.11, All That Remains, to talk about narration. Revenge is a dish best served by a beautiful woman. Admiral Zobel hits the gym. TGI Mirai. I'm afraid she has lost the will to live. Is this somehow still according to Keikaku? Everybody loved Garma. Romeo and Juliet and Airplanes. Zabi, 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 Gundam, Gundam. Shark! Oh, it's a shark! <laughs> it slices, it dices, it even opens Gao. A giant painting of yourself. And the funeral will be private, but friends can pledge their undying loyalty to Xeon. Will you be able to survive? Make sure you do all the podcast things. Like, subscribe, share, and pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown on fine podcast services everywhere and on YouTube. Follow us on Twitter at Gundam Podcast. Check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for episodes, show notes, and more. And you can email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. 
Or come shout your wrong Gundam opinions to us directly by coming to scenic New York City and yelling, I'ma let you finish, but Garmazabi's death is the most tragic Gundam death of all time, of all time, on any busy street corner. We'll totally hear you. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. Apparently, this was the first weekend in 25 years that didn't have a shooting in New York City. Wow. Yeah. Anyone, even the most seasoned captain, if somebody aims a destroyer at your ship, is probably going to yell, Ascend! (laughs) Emergency ascend! But while the galaxy is powered by four jet engines, the Gao has 18 engines and a nuclear reactor. We need to do that one again. Yeah, I'm sorry. (laughs) I heard heard 18 engines. (laughs) Yeah, that's too much. (laughs) That's too much, man. As we talked about last episode, last two episodes ago, as we talked about two episodes ago, I have no additional response to that. I know just enough about later Gundam series to be dangerous. (laughs) (laughs) I know there is such a thing as there's a shut your mouth. (laughs) You know nothing. That is a great place to end.